Uh, will you join me with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the time that we can come before you to lift our voices and our hearts and in love to you and express our appreciation for our salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We do worship you continually, but especially on this day, uh, the first day of the week when Christ was raised, on this first Sunday of the month when we remember the, the cross and Christ's death in our behalf. We continue now our heart of worship as we give careful attention to the proclamation of your word. And it's our prayer, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit upon us, that the speaker and the hearer would be anointed with power from on high, and that everyone here would have the sense of your presence among us. I'm instructing us, I'm dwelling here, your favor here. These things we ask according to the name of your son, Jesus, for his church and for your children. Amen. A court show is a kind of broadcasting genre that's about legal programming. It's sometimes real or dramatized, but most of the time it's just made up. It's dramatizing the legal hearings between plaintiffs and defendants and usually presided over by a judge. So as a whole, the court show genre began in the 1930s with a radio program called the Court of Human Relations. Uh, it's, court shows today are usually divided into one of two kinds. There's the scripted dramatizations where they take a, a, a real court case and then they dramatize them. And you've seen those like with Perry Mason and divorce court. But by far, the most popular kind of court shows today are these arbitration-based reality shows. And these arbitration-based reality shows, I'm loosely calling them a court show because they don't use actors and they're not using scripts and there's no improvisation. Uh, it's rather real litigants who have had a... a who have been served or have filed a real lawsuit. And in exchange for being able to appear on TV, they promise that they're gonna abide by whatever the arbiter, not the judge, decides in their case. And so they dismiss their legitimate, genuine cases with prejudice, and they promise to submit to whatever the arbiter decides in their part. Now these judges, in air quotes, these arbiters, are, they're not presiding as actual judges uh, because to be an actual judge, you would need to be in an actual courtroom. These uh, court cases are held on uh, TV, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're stages, they're, 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 they're film stages. And so everybody in this film stage is a, a real person, but it's not a real court. Uh, the, the arbiter, the person serving as judge, has very little real courtroom experience. Uh, Jerry Springer noted that most attorneys can get the special certification required to serve as an arbiter on a court show with only one day's training. If you're a lawyer, it's almost automatic unless you've killed someone. Uh, that, where's he, where do you fit in that, Bill? <laughs> any rate, so since these arbiters are not a legitimate court of law, they're not required to participate as if it were a court of law. They can kind of make up the rules as they go along. They're not restricted to courtroom procedures or legalities or codes of conduct. So they can pretty much 
um, behave in whatever way they see fit because they're not judges, they're just arbiters. And so they use their own standards, they use their own rules. Um, they can do that because the participants have signed these waivers saying that they're going to abide by whatever the arbiter decides. Now, the detractors of this kind of reality court will often um, point out that this is really unrepresentative of real world judging and they feel that these court shows um, they're, the, the, the guy that's acting as the judge is, is very uncivil and abusive, condescending and antagonistic. The, they can get away with that because it's all about entertainment. It's not so much about justice. And they would point out that if a real judge behaved in any manner like these arbiter judges do, they would be um, brought with uh, charges of conduct unbecoming a judge. So they can, they can do all kinds of stuff that a real judge doesn't do. They can break into the testimony, they can question the parties, they can challenge them, they can interrupt them, which they frequently do very rudely. But the thing that makes these so popular and so um, effective for the producers is they're super cheap to make because you don't have to pay any real talent to do it. These people are they're not scripted, they're just kind of moving with the flow. And so if the central host, the judge, air quote judge, if he has some kind of authenticity, if he's kind of compelling, you've got a program. And so um, you have a lot of these judges. They're, there are dozens of them, you know, like Judge Judy and Judge Mathis and Judge Joe Brown and Janine Pirro. Um, all of these are, are kind of arbitrary judges that are acting on their own, be, on their own uh, authority, not on the authority of, of a real court. But it's really popular because people like these kind of things, and, and, they're, and they're cheap to make. You can literally film a 39-episode season in less than two months, and for some reason, people forget what they've watched because they, sh they don't remember in the reruns that they've already seen that. So the, the TV guys know that, and so they'll often um, put out reruns that, that go unnoticed. And they're very cost-effective, and I guess they're just valued for their sheer efficiency as compelling television. Now, in case you're noting the sneering my, in my voice here, you know, I don't like courtroom TV. I, I find it... It's, well, I don't know, it's just not my choice of entertainment. I find it irritating and unbelievable. Admittedly, I have very little knowledge of real world uh, court, but on the several juries that I have sat on, uh, I have come to a conclusion that I don't particularly like lawyers. You know, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't trust them to tell the truth, you know? Which is why they say that 98% of all lawyers give the rest of them a bad name. It's because, you know, you. You, you can't really trust a lawyer to tell the truth. And I think that if you're at a court, if you're having a hearing, the whole point is to get at the truth and to evaluate the truth. But reality is that truth often has very little to do in a courtroom setting. And I'd like you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts 24, verse 1. And they say that... Uh, Arguing with a lawyer is kind of like wrestling with a pig in the mud. Sooner or later, you realize they like it. <laughs> you know what you call somebody that's smiling and courteous at a bar association meeting? The caterer. <laughs> okay, my favorite one, you've already heard this, but what's brown and looks good on a lawyer? A Rottweiler. 
All right, I kid. There's there actually, you know, you think there's a lot of lawyer jokes. That's not true. There's really only three. All the rest of them are true. At any rate, Paul has come to Jerusalem. He's on a mercy mission. And while he's there bringing um, support to the Jerusalem church, he uh, participates in the purification ritual. And while he's there in the temple complex, a, a week into it, almost finished with his purification principle, a riot breaks out. The Jews drag Paul out, accusing him of desecrating the temple. They're about ready to beat him to death. The Roman army moves in and incidentally saves his life. Uh, they think what they've done is captured an uh, Egyptian terrorist. They're about ready to torture a confession out of him when they discover he's a Roman citizen. He's not subject to being tortured or even arrested without a charge. And so they're then put in the awkward position of having to protect a Roman citizen from the Jews who are determined to kill him. So the the Jews realize they don't have a legitimate case to file against him, at least not in a Roman court. And so a group of vigilantes, about 40 of them, decide that they're going to murder Paul um, while he's being brought for questioning. This plot gets discovered by the Roman uh, tribune. And so he takes Paul out of Jerusalem by, with an unusually large military force, 470 men. I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal. This is half of his... Uh, contingent, half of his group there in Jerusalem, 470, including 200 heavy infantry, 200 light infantry, and 70 cavalry are dispatched to take Paul, who's an, un, who's an unaccused Roman citizen, from Jerusalem down to the imperial fortress and Roman uh, capital in, in Caesarea. Uh, the, the footmen, the infantry go halfway, and then they head back to Jerusalem. The cavalry takes Paul the rest of the way and hands him over to Felix. That's where we left off last week. Now, as we noted last week, Felix is a rascal. His name is Marcus Antonius Felix. He was born into slavery, and not due to any ability on his own, but rather because of the influence of his very capable brother, Paulus, who happens to be a personal friend of Emperor Claudius. Felix gets raised up through the ranks. So here's the guy who's born a slave. Now he's a governor, which makes him equal in Roman status to the equestrian knights. So he's, he's, uh, he's got a lot of power, but he's hated by the Jews. He's hated by the Jews because he's very harsh with them. Anytime anything happens, Felix comes down really heavy. He was even uh, well known for crucifying anyone he suspected of being a leader of some insurgency. Now, it's during his governorship that, because of his harshness, anarchy and rebellion rose substantially because of his brutality. Josephus says that he, was, he would repeatedly crucify leaders of the uprising. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said he, he was a master of cruelty and lust. He exercised the powers of a king with the mind of a slave. So here's a guy who's unscrupulous, avarice, brutal, scheming politician. Here's the guy who's going to serve as judge over Paul. Uh, Acts 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since 
Through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. I, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, so we start out by saying five days have passed. So five days since the cavalry has handed Paul over to Felix, the Sanhedrin get their case together, and they've hired a big gun. They've hired an orator, a lawyer, whose name is Tertullus, to bring charges against Paul. Now, we don't know anything about Tertullus except his name, which is a Roman name. So perhaps he is a, a, a Roman lawyer that the Jews have hired to be the big gun in this case. So he's a professional orator. Um, he's, he's there to give charge against Paul. And what we notice right away is that half of everything he says is this flattery to the governor. He begins by saying, we have enjoyed this long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms for our nations everywhere and every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge with profound gratitude. So he's really slathering it on. But you know what? This is just sheer hypocrisy. This is nothing but a lie. The Jews did not appreciate Felix. They did not like him in any way. They flat out hated him. He's, he was corrupt and vain. And the Jews had nothing kind to say about Felix. And I got to think that Felix is smart enough to know at this point that uh, he's being flattered, that the, that the shrewdness in trying to win him over. In fact, this was very common in uh, Roman court procedure. It was so common there's even a name for it. It's called capatio benevolentiae. It's just when you're trying to win the favor of the court. But he, it, I don't want to burst your bubbles, guys, but I just got to tell you, this is just a flat-out lie. It might shock and surprise you that a lawyer would lie in a court of law, but then, as now, it was not uncommon for a lawyer to tell a flat-out lie if it would help his case. And so that's what's going on here. The, the Jews despise Felix, but here's this lawyer beginning to tell them, oh, we, we really love you, Felix, and we appreciate so much all that, all that you've done. So then what follows is the formal charge. After he's tried to win the favor of the judge, now we get to the formal charge against Paul, verse 5. We have found this man to be a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So here's the charge. He's, he's a troublemaker. So the word troublemaker occurs in the NIV. Uh, the New American Standard uses the word pest. Your uh, ESV uses the word plague. The Greek translates here to pestilence, a stronger word than plague. So what they're saying is that Paul has this infectious nature. He's, uh, he's a plague of mammoth proportion. He's, a, he's spreading a disease, a contagion. Everywhere Paul goes, he stirs up anarchy. He stirs up sedition. Of course, there was some truth to that. Every place he went, the Jews would become rather violent and hot-headed about that. And so they're blaming Paul for stirring up rebellion. Now, you know, the Romans don't particularly care too much about the squabbling between the Jews, but they care a lot about someone who's going to break up the peace of Rome. So this is a serious charge. They're basically accusing Paul of sedition. So that would, that would 
prick their, the Roman governor's ears. So secondly, they, said, they say he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect. There's three parts to that. Every one of them is pejorative. First of all, they say he's, uh, he's, a, he's a ringleader. They use the word ringleader instead of just saying a leader of, of this group. You know, they, the reason they would say ringleader has the same kind of negative overtones as it does for us. You, know, you don't want to just say he's a leader. You want to say he's a ringleader. And they don't say Christian. They don't even use the word Jesus or Christ. They just call him the Nazarene. And they don't just say this is a, a, a group, an offshoot. They call it a sect. They call it a sect because it has the overtones of, of being heretical. So they're, they're saying he's this ringleader of a sect of the Nazarene. And now the third thing they say is he tried to desecrate the temple. Of course, this third charge is just flat out not true. Um, he had not tried to desecrate the temple. It was, that was just the accusation that the mob had against him. And now Tertullus says, in further distorting the truth, he says, we seized him. And what he's saying is, we were afraid that he was going to uh, desecrate the temple, and so we arrested him to prevent him from doing that. Now, that's not true either. They didn't arrest him. They, there was a mob action, and the mob went nuts, and, were, and they were going to kill him, and the Romans had to break in and seize him or arrest him to prevent him from getting killed. So those are the charges. He's a troublemaker. He's a ringleader. He tried to desecrate the temple. And so Tertullus, I think he's trying to secure points, mostly with this last accusation, because the Romans recognized the sanctity of the temple, and they gave the Jews quite a bit of, of, of a space to, to keep the temple pure and even allowed them to, to prescribe the death penalty for those people who violated it. Now, in reality, you'd think Paul would have nothing to fear from the truth, but we always discover that truth has little to do in winning a court case. And so, Significantly, here's this guy who begins with making it so easy to flatter and lie, and he quickly moves to being able to accuse and lie with no evidence. Isn't it interesting how those two things often go together, that the person who is quick to flatter will just as quickly be the person to accuse you without evidence? All right, so we move now to Paul's defense against his three charges, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, 
They ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is respect to the resurrection. It is in it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. So Paul begins with kind words, but he's not flattering Felix. He's not lying about what a great person Felix is. He rather expresses thankfulness that he's standing before someone who's familiar with handling the Jews, who's not unaccustomed to their tactics. He's thankful that Felix is not a novice, but he's a man of considerable experience dealing with the Jews, and that he's very much aware of Christians. And so Paul expresses um, his confidence in being able to give his defense before someone who's, who's learned through all of his years of being a governor and also by the, fact, by the fact that he has married a Jewish wife, what Jews are like. And so again, this is not an attempt to flatter here, but it is an expression of his gratitude. Now in verse 11 through 13, Paul gives a summary of his defense. It begins by saying, it was only 12 days ago that I went up to Jerusalem. Let's think about that. A week ago, he got arrested. Remember, he was at, towards the end of the seven-day purification. So it's a week since he's been arrested. Two weeks ago, he was back here in Caesarea at the home of Philip the Evangelist. So his, his argument, his, his, his introduction basically saying, it's only been 12 days. That really hasn't been enough to stir up the kind of dissension that they're accusing me of. I couldn't have had the time to create that kind of a disturbance. Beyond that, Paul says, the reason that he has come to Jerusalem is to worship, not to cause trouble. And when they found him, when all this trouble started, he wasn't arguing with anybody. He wasn't debating with other people. He wasn't hanging out in the normal places for such activities. And so he's saying, that's the, the truth, and let anybody who was there say otherwise. Oh, here's the weakness in your argument. What you're accusing me of was not actually witnessed by any of these people. The ones who say that I was disturbing the peace in the temple aren't even here. They need to be, the, the, the accused needs to be accused by people who are actual witnesses. And Paul is saying that he's falsely accused and that false accusers aren't even present in the courtroom. Verses 14 to 16, Paul answers the specific charge about being a, a cult leader, someone who's uh, outside of the bounds of, of legitimate uh, Jewish orthodoxy. And he begins by saying that he, you know, he's not outside Jewish orthodoxy. And uh, you might recall back in uh, Acts chapter 18, when Paul was in Corinth, that uh, Paul was brought before another governor, a Roman proconsul, just as Felix is, Gallio, who, with very similar charges against him, Gallio dismissed the, the case, saying that he recognized that there were different factions within Ju Judaism, and that he acknowledged that, that Christianity, the way, is not a sect. It's a form of Judaism. And so Paul begins by saying this is, he's not outside the, the realm of Jewish orthodoxy, and we'll come back to this in a minute because this is a really big point. But secondly, uh, Tertullus accuses Paul of being a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes, and he says, I'm not denying the fact that I'm a follower of the way, 
Um, but this way is not a sect. It is a legitimate expression of true Judaism. In fact, it is the only legitimate expression of true Judaism because it is the fulfillment of all the Jews that were look, all that the Jews were looking forward, which was written in the law and the prophets. So his faith does not in any way denounce the Old Testament scriptures. Instead, his faith is the fulfillment of the scriptures. The distance between Paul and these Jewish accusers really isn't as great as they want to represent. It boils down to this, that he has a hope in God, which also they have, a hope in God. His hope is based squarely upon the certainty of the resurrection of the dead, both in this case of the righteous and the unrighteous. And it's on the basis of this resurrection of the dead and his hope in it that Paul says, I try to live my life with a clear conscience towards God and his people. Verse 17, verse 17 through 21, Paul concludes his defense uh, after he's had this, uh, the backdrop of these introductory words. Now he's going to say what really happened at, in the temple. By the way, there are no witnesses to the contrary present in the court. So he tells Felix what really happened there. He had gone up there not to incite a riot, not to debate. He came there to worship. He was in the process of a purification rite. That's hardly inciting a riot. Uh, when those Asian Jews who falsely accused him of wrongdoing went nuts, and they should be here to make a charge. Only the people who witnessed the crime should be making a charge against these crimes. These guys who represent the Sanhedrin, weren't even there. And the only thing that they could say that they could testify against me is while I was in the Sanhedrin, I, representing myself as a Pharisee, I, I said, this is all about my hope in the resurrection. And the Sanhedrin went nuts. That's the only charge that they could bring against me in his belief in the resurrection of the dead. Actually, if you were to contrast the Jewish accusers here with Paul, you know, Paul says that he believes everything that's in accordance with the law that's written in the prophets. Actually, if you were to contrast these two, Paul and the Sanhedrin, you would find out that if anybody's a heretic in this courtroom, it is the Sanhedrin. Because Paul believes everything that is written in the scriptures. They, in turn, only believe the scriptures that were written by Moses, the Pentateuch. They say they, re, they, they respect the word of God, but they only accept the Pentateuch, the first five books. Paul says, I believe in the full, the plenary inspiration of scripture. I believe everything in the scriptures. Well, they accept only that. So I guess the bottom line for Paul here is he's actually more orthodox than his accusers are. Now, he serves the God of their fathers. He believes in the inspiration of the Old Testament. He accepts everything that's been taught there, and they don't. So his belief in the Old Testament leads him to, where are we, to have a hope in God uh, that there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Incidentally, this is the first place that we have uh, the resurrection of the unrighteous mentioned. We've talked many times about the resurrection of the righteous. So the resurrection is the hope of the Jewish people, and it's been taught over and over in the Old Testament. You have Job 19, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12. And so Paul is placing himself um, in contrast to these skeptical 
Sadducees. And he's saying he's the one who's firmly anchored to mainstream Jewish theology. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, with, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. This is significant, but I won't spend some time there. Remember, there's a fairly large Christian community there in Caesarea who would be interested in taking care of Paul. And this also would be, give Luke the time to have access to Paul because it's during Paul's incarceration in Caesarea that Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and most of the book of Acts that we're studying now. Verse 24, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So Drusilla is Felix's third wife. She is his uh, second husband. And Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Hera Agrippa I. Uh, she, she had originally been married to Azizus. He's uh, the king of a minor kingdom in Syria called uh, Emesa. At uh, any rate, she found Azizus a rather boring husband, not very exciting. And so when she met Felix, um, she found him a lot more interesting and decided to uh, eventually become Felix's illicit lover and his first common-law wife. She's, she's 16 when she gets married to Azizus, and she's only about 20 when she hooks up with uh, Felix. So she was known to be an unusually beautiful, uh, ambitious. Uh, her lust for power was equal to that of her new husband. Unlike Felix, however, Drusilla was a, a Jewess. She was brought up in the Jewish faith, but by this time she had no longer had an active faith in the one true God. We're told that verse 24 that Paul puts forward this very straightforward witness to Felix and Drusilla. They, they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. They honestly basically came to Paul to be entertained. They were amused by him. But Paul made a very clear presentation of the gospel, emphasizing that if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they would be saved. You know, Paul gets it where they're coming from. He understands their vain pursuits. He knows that they've been looking for love in all the wrong places. He's, he's telling them how their lives would change if, the, if Christ came into their lives. So he's presenting an honest, faithful uh, gospel presentation to them. And we're told there's three elements to his presentation here. The first has to do with his discussion of personal morality. He speaks to them about righteousness. He's talking about God's holy requirements, that man is a moral being, and as such, being a moral being, he's, he's aware of the moral requirements of a just and holy God. And uh, he... Uh, he, no doubt, would have made references to a, a letter that he wrote at most just a couple months ago from Romans that no one is righteous, not one, Romans 3.10, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That sounds pretty familiar to his case right now. Uh, that's Romans 1.18. He also told them, secondly, about self-control. He's talking to a couple of people who have just lived with unbridled passion. Just do whatever you want to do. And perhaps he taught about um, such things as Galatians 5, that part of the fruit, the presence of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And finally, he referred them to the coming judgment, and he warned them that they would not escape personal accountability, that the God who is a moral God would judge not only their outward actions, but their inward um, hearts. You know, he wants to win their souls to the Savior. But Paul does not soft-pedal the truth. And the preaching that we have today of the gospel, the good news, must also not soft-pedal the truth. We must include in our presentation of the gospel the lostness of man and a God who has universal moral demands. And if we leave those things out, we're not preaching the authentic gospel. Paul has a problem, which coincidentally is the same problem we have today. He's talking to some people who have the same problem as the people that we talk to in Port Townsend today. He has to gain a hearing among people who have very little acquaintance and even less attraction, who find it very hard to take the gospel seriously with a message that strikes at the very roots of everything their culture of the Greco-Roman world or the modern American world has come to believe today. Years ago, maybe some of you are familiar, I know, Bill, you are with Evangelism Explosion. Came out in the 1960s, D. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in South Florida came up with this uh, evangelism technique. And so lots of churches in the 70s were doing Evangelism Explosion with a pretty a good return. You know, people, a lot of people were getting saved as a consequence of Evangelism Explosion. When, that, when they took that to France, however, they found out it didn't work. And the reason that it didn't work in France was because of a fundamental assumption that everyone understands that the Bible ought to be taken seriously, and that was not true in France. And it's not true today. And it's certainly not true in Port Townsend today. Back when it was created in the 1960s in the Bible Belt in southern Florida, there were somewhere around 65% of all Americans who said that they believed the Bible to be true. But that's not the case today. Less than 20% in all of America believe the Bible is true, have any confidence in the Bible. In fact, you are more apt to run into people today who say there is no such thing as truth. And it would be, you'd be very unlike to run into people who say that they believe that the Bible is true. So Paul reasoned with them, not first about whether he or this Jewish delegation was most accurately representing the truth or the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures. He doesn't argue with them at this stage about Jesus whether he came back from the dead or whether he is the Messiah of the Jews, because questions like that aren't likely to be interesting to them at that level. And same thing for us when we present the gospel today. You have to start with where they are. And so instead, he reasons with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, this is what Christian apologists call the moral argument. 
Again, he argues that human beings, men, are moral agents and that they know what is good and that they choose not to do it. And they are, for that reason, subject to divine judgment. And we have the basis for that, again, from Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, like I said, which Paul had written at most just a few months earlier than this. But that's where a lot of people find themselves today. They, they, they know something about Christianity, but they don't know enough. They don't know a great deal about it. Perhaps the people you run into have been taught about Jesus from their parents. They had godly parents who invested in them and, and taught them something about Jesus, and perhaps they learned something about Jesus from a friend. Um, they knew somebody who was a Christian. That Christian explained the gospel to them. So maybe they've read books or heard Christian ministers on the radio or on TV. They know something about Christianity. But like Felix, they have no real reason to doubt the character of the person that's talking to them, but they're not ready to embrace that truth as something for themselves. Maybe also like Felix, you notice here, where are we in verse 25, when Felix hears the gospel, when Paul tells him, when he begins with this moral argument of Christianity, Felix, verse 25, is alarmed. He's, uh, he's struck. He's uh, troubled. Why? Because he feels a sense of the, the weight, the condemnation that this truth brings. And the person that you talk to, like Felix, begins to wonder, what if this is true? What if I really will have to one day stand before a judge? I mean, I know what is right to do, and I don't do it. I choose to do wrong. You know, what's going to happen to me if I have to stand before a God in judgment? And yet, what Felix said is typically what people will say to you today once you've explained all this to them. What do they say? It's seldom no, and it's seldom yes. What they usually say is, not now. Let me think about it. Or they'll say, I believe what you say is true, but I'm not ready yet to embrace this truth. Well, what's going to happen to them in the meantime? You know, they're going to say, well, I'm not, I'm not ready to embrace this truth. I want, to, I want to live life for a while. If it's a young person, they'll say, yeah, I'm not, done, I'm not done living it up. I want to do all this, and then I want to repent and have salvation in the end, but I don't want to cut into the fun of life in the meantime. But what happens when the person says, I'm not ready yet? I'll, I'll think about it. I'll decide later. Well, they continue to sin. They can't not. And as they continue to sin, they're accumulating sin. And they're hardening their heart. Do you really think that after a year or two years of continuing to reject the truth, and run to their sin, that this accumulated hardness of their heart is going to make them more likely to receive the truth in a year or two years or, th or three? It, in fact, will become many times harder for them because of their continued sin. They're not going to be more open to the gospel later, and that's why the Bible says now is the time for salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. There's Never been a better time to turn from sin than, than the present moment. Anyway, Felix, he doesn't want Christ. He, he isn't interested in righteousness, self-control, or the coming judgment. 
Now, he is sufficiently interested to keep coming and hearing Paul some more, partly for the entertainment, but Luke suggests that there's a further motive for these repeated interviews, and that is he's hoping for money. He's hoping for a bribe. You know, there were very stern and reiterated edicts against bribery in Roman justice, but the reality is that especially in some of these more remote provinces that the wheels of justice ran more smoothly and rapidly if they were judiciously oiled, and a number of provincial governors were deplorably venal. At any rate, so Felix is hoping that there might be some money in it for him. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix had succeed, was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You know what's missing in that? Why Felix would want to leave Paul in prison to do the Jews a favor since he doesn't like them and they don't like him. Oh, here's the backstory. I told you that Felix was ruthless, that he was brutal, and that the Jews hated him for that. Well, not, we just got two years between the time that Paul is facing him now as judge and when Felix is recalled back to Rome. What happens is Felix continues this brutal assault against the Jews, and most recently there was an uprising right there in Caesarea, and Felix sent the Roman soldiers in and just annihilated anyone of consequence. The Jews wrote to Rome a petition to have Felix recalled because of his brutality. And Felix, in fact, was recalled um, because of the, the bloodshed against the, uh, the, the Jews. And when he returned to Rome, it would have gone very poorly for him. He would have been subject to severe penalty were it not for the favor again of his brother Paulus, who by this time is no longer in office, but he's a very wealthy and influential man. And Paulus, um, he retains a lot of, uh, uh, of his influence, and he gets Felix off uh, easily. Then Felix is then succeeded by um, Portius Fex. Portius Festus, and he, Festus has a very brief uh, administration, but we'll get back to him next week. But Felix leaves Paul in prison. Begin, again, remember, the Jews have sent this complaint to the emperor that Felix is a rascal. And Paul, or excuse me, Felix is hoping that if he leaves Paul in prison, that maybe the Jews will be placated just enough to withdraw some of their harsh accusation against him. So this is not the, the workings of, of some, somebody who just wants to have a gesture of, of goodwill. He's hoping that their criticism will be reduced. All right, in closing, let's frame this. Let's, let's put this into a, a bigger perspective. It's just been a few days ago now, a week at most, when Paul has been accosted by the Jews in the temple and he's been tried by the, the, the Sanhedrin He's, he was at that time, just a week ago, feeling quite discouraged and despondent, and it's there, chapter 23, verse 11, when Jesus stands by Paul and says, to take courage, because just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So there's a promise that Paul is alerted to that he's going to Rome and that he's going to testify there. Nothing can change that because of God's providence. Or you think back when Paul first became a Christian, back in uh, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, you know, 
Paul has been struck blind. He meets Jesus on the way to Damascus. The prophet Ananias, not to be confused with the high priest Ananias, who's a dirtbag, but the prophet Ananias. Um, God tells the prophet Ananias to go to Paul and minister to him, and he doesn't want to because he knows Paul's reputation. And Jesus tells him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, watch this, before Gentiles and Jews, and, and before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, or something like that. Anyway, what's happened here? So Paul has testified to the Gentiles. We've gone a long circuit on three of his different Gentile missionary trips, and he has witnessed, testified to the Jews, most recently on the steps of the, of the Antonian fortress to the Jews and to the Sanhedrin. So he's witnessed to the Jews. He's witnessed to the Gentiles. He has certainly suffered for the sake of Christ. Now he's begun this trek to Rome. He's begun the first of many Roman trials, and it's all rather interesting how these Roman trials unfold. It's rather entertaining, and it's all quite real, not like court television. Like I said, I don't watch court TV. I, I didn't even watch Perry Mason, you know, when I was growing up. I'm, I'm sure some of you did, but like I said, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy that kind of entertainment, and, I, and I'd act, I don't enjoy serving on juries either. It frustrates me, I, but like, I learned enough to not only not trust lawyers, but I don't trust judges, and I don't trust jurors to decide what is true. I, I have, that's probably, you know, if you ever sue me, I'm probably just going to roll over. You know, if you... <laughs> I have a friend in Kent. His name is um, Nathaniel Green. He's a district court in, uh, a, a, he's a King County District Court judge. And I asked him one time, I've shared this with you before, I, you know, when, when you're in a courtroom, do you just assume both parties are lying to you? And he said he assumes that everybody is lying to him. And his job as the, as the judge is to try to find the medium, you know, try to balance out who's lying the most, you know, because he's trying to determine the truth between a room full of liars. Here's Paul telling the truth. And the judge knew that he was telling the truth. But you know what? He doesn't actually care because truth is not what wins in a court of law. And so for that, he stays in jail. But Paul is content with that because he acknowledges the concurrent providence of God in all of this. He's going to Rome, and he knows it. And now he's taking the next step. Um, let's pray and prepare for the um, communion and... Jacob? Oh, thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you once again um, for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, the amazing thing that sinners like us, not just those who have sinned, but those who continue to sin even though we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are in need once again of your forgiveness. We are not given forgiveness because of this communion. We are reminded that we have received it freely because you are such a gracious God, more eager to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness. We acknowledge in these common elements, this bread and this wine, to represent 
the body and the blood of Jesus, and we ask you to set these common things aside to a holy, sacred purpose. And at the same time, Father, we pray that you would set aside these common, ordinary lives. We're no different from anybody else. We still sin, but we are forgiven. So we set aside these common lives to a sacred purpose, to testify about Jesus, to be your sons and daughters in this world. Minister to us, Father, and help us in these things to not only remember the death of your son Jesus, his righteous life lived for us, but also to remember we share this communion with one another, with each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.